morning. Um, is this on? Okay. Good morning. My name is Claude Owens. I'm one of the elders. And so today the, the, the passage of scripture we're reading comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. So if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 866. And if you would stand, please, as we read God's word. Again, Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. As, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Uh, Please be seated as you meditate on God's word. There's a book that I'm going to mention uh, that's been very helpful to me. It's called The Soul of Shame. The Soul of Shame. I believe the, last, the guy's last name is Thompson. And uh, if something about this sermon resonates with you in that regard, you might find that book 
helpful. I want to begin by telling you a, a true story. It's if you're a Young Life leader and you've ever given a Young Life talk, you've probably used this story. It's a story that I've used here before. It's a true story about a guy named Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin was uh, from France, but what he was well known for is a tightrope walker. I'm glad that's not what I'm well known for, tightrope walker. And so one of his most amazing feats was to walk across Niagara Falls. So he's the first one to put a a two-inch rope across the fall, and it's 250 feet above the fall, and it's about a 1,000-foot walk. And Charles Blondin, he stretches the tightrope. Of course, they have all kinds of advertisement to get people to come and And thousands, hundreds of thousands, people come and watch Charles Blondin walk across the rope. And they're all amazed. But then he went back and did other stunts on the rope. So he walked across the rope blindfolded. He walked across the rope backwards. He walked out into the middle of the rope and sat down and ate lunch. So so when he got to one side of the rope or one side of of the canyon... They, he sort of shouted, do you think there's anything Charles can't do on the rope? No, you can do anything. Do you think I can carry a man across the rope? Yes, you can carry a man across the rope. Are there any volunteers? <laughs> uh, no, no, no volunteers. And of course, they had anticipated this answer. So Charles had gotten his Manager Harry Cawcord, Cawcord. Harry was going to volunteer. So I can't imagine that conversation, you know. (laughs) Charles saying, you know, nobody's going to volunteer. You got to volunteer. And so uh, Harry volunteers. And listen, I want you to listen carefully to what Charles tells Harry about being carried across. He gets on his back and he says to Harry, look up, Harry. Don't, don't, don't look down. It's going to be bad for you. So just look up and listen carefully. You are no longer a call cord. You're a blondin. Until I'm across, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. And listen to this last line. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. Mm. If it looks like you're about ready to fall to your death, don't try to counterbalance because then you will fall to your death. Look up, Harry. You're no longer Harry Concord. You're a blondin. Until I'm across, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. See, Charles wasn't looking for somebody with great skill. He was looking for somebody with great faith. Somebody who would get, somebody who would trust Charles to safely get him across the waterfall. And Jesus is looking for the same kind of people. He's not looking for intelligent people. He's not looking for particularly gifted people. He's not looking for people who have money, resources, talent. He's looking for people with great faith. 
who will jump on his back and say, hey, I'm going to be 100% 100 responsible for carrying you from here into the life beyond. And if I sway, you sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. Just trust me. Mind, body, and soul. So our title here for this sermon is Looking for Faith. And one of the threads through these chapters, if you're keeping notes, is this idea of faith. You remember in in chapter 5, the first little test for Peter. Remember, he's been out fishing, hadn't caught anything, comes back. He lets Jesus uh, use his boat to, to kind of push out from the shore to teach. And then when it's all over, Jesus says, hey, let's push out a little bit deeper for, for a catch. And remember Peter, what, what, remember this little conversation? We've been out all night. Preacher, we're the fishermen. And then this key line, because you say so, I will. You hear that? If you sway, I sway. I'm going to trust you, mind, body, and soul. Chapter 7, the centurion soldier. Remember, Jesus is coming to heal the person under his care. And when he finds out, he sends somebody out and says, hey, hey, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word. And Jesus looks at, looked at this man or his servant and says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Joseph talked last week in chapter 8, the storms. Remember, Jesus comes and calms the storm, and he turns to his disciples, and what does he say? Where is your, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Jesus was still looking for faith when he encountered these two people from opposite ends of the social spectrum, the bleeding woman and Jairus. They, they both have to exercise great faith, even though they're coming from totally different culture, really cultural spectrums. And let's, let's just understand the background before we look at these two people. Jesus had been sort of collecting disciples. He's going around the northern part of Israel. It's called Galilee. And he's going to these little map dot towns that don't really, uh, you, you wouldn't know the names of them. Very small villages, some of them around the Sea of Galilee, little fishing villages. And then he comes back. So it says, now when Jesus returned in verse 40, he's coming back to his adult hometown. This is the hometown for several of his disciples as well. It's a small fishing village, Capernaum, 1,000, 1,500 people. You might think of like your average high school size. If you live there your whole life, you pretty much know everybody in town. Certainly everybody knew Jairus. He's a very important religious leader. He's powerful. He's popular. When he entered the room, when he entered the synagogue, when he entered your house, everybody looked at him. Everybody knows him. He has a name. Perhaps the same was true for the bleeding woman, but for a different reason. Everybody knew her. Every local knew her because she has a discharge of blood. She's had it for 12 years. And word spread around, hey, she just can't get well. And according to Leviticus 15, if you touch this woman, you're unclean. If she sat in a chair and got up and then you sat in that chair, you're unclean. 
So everybody knows her. They've mostly forgotten her name. So in the story, she's just the bleeding woman. And when she comes around, hey, don't, don't touch her. Get away from her. She's not powerful. She's not popular in this, that sense. She's well-known. She's really well-known because of her shame. She's well-known because of her, the shame of being unclean. So these two people, they're, they're intersecting Jesus. They're coming from opposite ends of life's spectrum. Yet they have at least two things in common. One, desperation. I mean, these two people, you know the story. They are desperate. Notice they're both desperately counting on and clinging to Jesus, like I imagine Harry clinging on to Charles. He, he's the only hope. When, when Charles is out in the middle of the rope, it, it, this is it. He's all in. Harry's all in on Charles. And I think that's the kind of clinging these two people come. They've tried everything. And what's, what's happening in their world is they cannot control it. They've tried. The woman, she's tried for 12 years. She spent all of her money. But it's, it's outside of her control. And isn't it interesting how desperation puts status into perspective? Jairus approaches Jesus with designer clothes, uh, the bleeding woman with bloody rags. But, you know, <laughs> right now, status doesn't matter. They, they both lost control over what's happening. They're desperate. And their desperation, listen, turns out to be a good thing. Their desperation is what causes them to say, I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to find someone else who, who wants to help me. Preacher Crawford Loritz, in his sermon on this passage, he says this, our faith will only grow in proportion to our desperation. I hate to tell you that. I wish it was another line. I wish it was, our faith will only grow in proportion to our prosperity. Don't, isn't that what you want it to say? But you know it's true. Your faith will only grow in proportion to our desperation. There, there's no such thing as faith without opposition. What, what creates the environment of faith is desperation. You, you can't have real faith just by knowledge. You can't say, well, I've studied the scripture and I know the Greek word for faith and how it all it comes out in the Bible. And I've read Hebrews 11 and I know the hall of fame of faith and I know these people of faith and I've known people in my life who are faithful. That's all very helpful, but that doesn't give you real faith. What gives you real faith is desperation. That there's nothing else I can do or anyone else can do. I'm completely reliant on Jesus. So if you've never reached a place where all other solutions have been taken off the table, if you've never reached the place where you have zero control, then your faith is going to be wafer thin. Losing control, desperation is what builds the faith of these two people. Perhaps you've heard this saying, you often turn to God when your foundation is shaking, only to discover that God is shaking them. 
You ever heard that? I mean, I'm, in de- I'm, I'm desperate. The, the very foundations I put my life on are shaking. So, God, what are you doing? Well, you're doing it. You're doing it. Perhaps some of you right now, God's shaking your foundation. It's very possible that God Almighty is orchestrating the collapse of the platform you've built your life on. It's not your spouse, it's not your boss, it's not the economy, it's not COVID. God is using circumstances to collapse your platform, to get you to a place of desperation. So that you're out in the middle, above, uh, 250 feet above the falls, and he's saying, don't sway, except for when I sway. Just look up. Don't, don't focus on your circumstances. Focus on me. I hate to say this desperation is going to come to all of us at some point, and we're going to find out how strong our muscle of faith is. Thankfully, this desperation drove these two people to Jesus. Second thing they share beyond desperation is shame. They both have shame. Sort of obvious for the bleeding woman. She spent her entire life's fortune, whatever it may have been, trying to get well. She's in hiding the entire time. You notice that? So she could have chosen any time. She, she knows about Jesus. She can hear, hey, Jesus is coming back into town. And should I meet him like right when he gets to the gate or should I meet him just outside of town? I mean, she's trying to calculate when's the best time for me who can't touch anybody to touch somebody. Well, it's probably not out in the open. So she's actually hiding in a crowd. You can do that. You get, you get a massive group of people and you come up from behind. So nobody's face is looking at your face. And most of all, Jesus' face is not looking at my face. You notice she's coming up from behind, and she's hoping that there's some sort of magic in his robe or in him. If I just touch it and then I let the crowd go by me, no one can ever see. She's completely covered, making sure nobody, because if any of the locals find out she's in the crowd, she's exposed. So she's hiding She's hoping just to fade out into the shadows. She has shame, not just because of her bleeding, but in all likelihood because of what she tried to do to get well. There are ancient writings that tell us what uh, Jewish people at that time thought could make you well. One of them is if you went to the, the droppings of a donkey and picked out corn and held them in your pocket for some number of days, you'd get well. Now, that sounds stupid, right? I mean, let's just say it. (laughs) But let me say, people do stupid things to make themselves get well. I mean, they look a little fancier than that today. But people try all kinds of stupid things saying, I'm not well, and if I just pick this up and hold it in my pocket, then that's going to be it. Stupid. It's foolish. 
Christian speaker Rebecca Pippert. She'd finished a talk to a large group of people. She says this in her book. After I'd finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform with tears welling up in her eyes, and she she sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé had been youth workers at a large conservative church, and everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months before they were married, they began to have sexual relations and soon afterwards discovered she's pregnant. Quote, you can't imagine what the implications would have been on admitting this to our church. We felt the church wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation. We couldn't bear the shame. So we made the most excruciating decision I've ever made. Thinking this would fix the problem, I had an abortion. My wedding day at the church was the worst day of my entire life. I've confessed this sin a thousand times, but it still haunts me. People try to do strange things thinking it's going to fix themselves. It's almost always accompanied by shame. In The Soul of Shame, this book that I'm recommending, the author says this, shame's narrative is some version of this. So just think, is this a narrative that you have in your head? I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm bad. Listen to what he says. We each have our own shame attendant. Isn't that a great way to express it? We each have like a little shame attendant. And here's how he describes the shame attendant. The shame attendant is not there to care for you, but rather to infuse elements of judgment into every moment of your life. See, just when you think you're, you're coming out some way, the shame attendant says, oh, what if they find out about that? Oh, 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 I better go back in. Everyone has a shame attendant. And I can imagine for this bleeding woman, her shame attendant was very active, very loud, infusing elements of judgment, trying to keep her from Jesus. I mean, he won't want to have anything to do with you. The best you could do is just come up from behind and touch him, but make sure he never knows anything about it. What about Jairus? Jairus is really how you say his name. Why would he have shame? Well, Jesus has already done some ministry around that area and stirred up some uh, conflict with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were saying, this guy is a fake, fraud. You don't listen to him. People were starting to go to Jesus and away from the Pharisees. So all of Jairus' friends would have looked down on Jesus. And he's desperate. He's at a crossroad. Which, which way is he going to go? Who's, whose voice is going to win out? Is it going to be the Pharisees, his friends, or is it going to be Jesus' voice? Desperation turned out to be his friend. My, da- my daughter's dying. I don't care what my friends say anymore. I used to care, 
but I don't care right now because my daughter's more important than any voice of my friend. And so the desperation is his friend. It's like fuel. If he hadn't had this fuel, never would have come to Jesus. So he's risking the shame that would come from his friends. And I want to say for high school students and college students, many of you, this is your last day for, before you leave for the summer. At some point, you're going to be pressed to choose whose voice to follow. It's going to be a real choice. And if you don't choose your friends, what's going to come upon you is shame. I have before talked about the frame of pain. You remember that? That when you get into pain, your world shrinks to this one frame. I'm in pain. I hit my thumb with a hammer. Now my whole world is my thumb. And when you're in pain, your whole world shrinks to your painful moment. And then you live in that frame and what you do when you're in a painful moment, and you've, you've all done this, Paul, it's never going to change, right? You've said this. You, you take the frame and say, this is the rest of my life. Everybody does this. I think there's a frame of shame. You've done something. You've been the girl or the boy who had an abortion. And you can get stuck in a frame of shame. And your attendant can keep you in that frame the rest of your life. And so it's a real danger when you come to this crossroads. What am I going to live in? Whose voice am I going to follow? And if you move towards the voice of your friends, your faith is wafer thin. But you have to have this moment in order to exercise that muscle. It, the desperation, the, 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 the fork in the road is an opportunity to exercise something, to make it much stronger for your soul. Let's look how Jesus responds to each, the woman in Jairus. Jesus stops the parade just to seek out this woman. And he asks this odd question. Who touched me? Of course, who's the first person to respond? Peter, right? I mean, uh, say something, think. That's Peter's way of operating. But I mean, he's just saying the thing everybody else thinks, right? It's the, the way the Greek describes it is a pressing crowd. I mean, come on, Jesus. We're all touching you. Everybody here has touched you. This daughter's dying. Let's move along. Let's, let's go somewhere. See, Jesus is starting to sway towards this woman. And what is Peter trying to do? Counterbalance. Most scholars think this question didn't come from a lack of knowledge in Jesus. It was a question to draw the woman out. And you're supposed to think Genesis 3. Remember what God does coming in the garden? What's the first question he asks? Where are you? I mean, he knows where they are, right? But it's a way of saying, I, I know you're in hiding. I'm not trying to beat you out of the bushes. I'm trying to draw you out. The woman's in hiding. Says she's hiding. 
And then she knows, verse 47, I'm not hidden anymore. This is a great moment. I'm not hidden. The Lord can actually see me. He knows something happened between he and I. So she comes trembling and falls down before Jesus. Now, why is she so afraid? Why is she so afraid? Answer, shame. Oh, he's going to see me. And everyone else is going to see me. I have to stop and take down my veil and everybody's going to just part like the Red Sea. Oh my gosh, I think I might have touched that woman. Now I'm unclean. You can can feel her pain and her frame of shame. She's vulnerable. She's exposed. And what might God do to a person who knows if he knows all of your shame? In the Gospel of Mark, the woman came to Jesus and says this, she told him her whole story. So a woman who's spent all of her money, lost all of her relationships, it's been 12 years. How long is that story? Yes, it's not two minutes. It's a long story. And I just thought this, this week, what's going on here? You think with me. What's Jesus doing here? I think he lanced a boil of shame. And his listening is a way of draining it all out. Do you see what it says? And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all. Do you feel that? He's discovered me. He's lanced this boil. And in front of him and everyone else, he's making me say my story. I'm pouring out all the shame. Hey, these pieces of corn in my pocket, Jesus, I thought they were going to help me for a little while. I'm telling all my shame until she's finally whole and free. Because the way you get out of the frame of shame is it has to be drained out. It has to be drained out in front of Jesus and, listen, someone else. It has to be drained out in front of someone else. Not everyone else. But someone else must hear all of your shame in order for you to get out of the frame of shame. I think that's what's happening at the woman of the well. I need to hear about all five husbands and the man you're not living with right now. And he drains it out. And you know she's free. You know, I just want to meet this woman. You know she's free because when she goes back to her town, you remember what she says? Come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. How many want to volunteer for that encounter? I don't. I don't want anybody to know everything I ever did. But do you see how it got drained out? Everybody knew this woman in this town. She was the prostitute. 
And she comes back completely free because she ran into a freight train of mercy in Jesus and not condemnation. And that set her free. I mean, she can imagine she's just going to be heaped condemnation from Jesus, the holy man. And she gets mercy. And the biggest moment of her life is she gets a name. You see it in the text? Daughter. The only time Jesus used this word in the New Testament. What a name. You're a daughter of the Most High King. I know all of your shame, and I want you to be a part of my family. That set her free. Free to expose herself to other people, be vulnerable to other people, because the person who mattered the most loved her. Loved her. Jairus, while he was listening, while Jesus was listening, news arrives. Hey, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. Jesus overhears the comment immediately turns to him and says, do not fear, only believe. In the Greek, no fear, only faith. He's listening. He's getting to the end of the story. He can hear this rustling. I mean, Jesus does know what's going on. And he turns and he looks this man in the face, no fear, only faith. No fear, only faith. I think he, he, the story doesn't say, but my guess is he has to turn to him as they walk back to the house and say it many times. Hey, no fear, only faith. In the Greek, the word believe or faith here, the tense of it is make an act of faith. I, wanna, I want you to hear me. This isn't a feeling of faith. Oh, I feel faithful. No, I'm, I'm acting. I, it's like he's saying, keep believing. Hey, you, it took faith for you to come ask for help. Keep, keep relying on that faith. Just because your circumstances have changed, don't stop believing. Don't lose hold of your faith. Take your faith out. Act on it. I think this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples in the earlier passage. Think of all the things the disciples had seen Jesus do already. He had, they had seen him raise a little boy from death to life in name. And they're out on the ocean, and Jesus calms the storm, and he says, where is your faith? Guys, you got to take it out. He doesn't say, do you have faith? He knows they have faith. He's saying, you got to take it out and use it. you got to exercise your faith. It's something active that you go out and say, this is, I, this is what I believe. I'm exercising my faith. I'm taking it out in this difficult circumstance. So if you're a believer here this morning, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of the universe and all things hold together because of him? Do you believe he died and rose again? That the spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead, if he's living in you, he's going to give 
eternal life to your mortal bodies also? Are you convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation can separate you from God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Do you believe that? Then take it out. When your circumstances are falling apart, do you take that out? That's faith. It's not a feeling. I'm taking out a truth. I'm standing on this solid truth that even everything else gives way. This is never going to give way. That Jesus has the power even in the moment of my last breath. He's going to carry me from one side to the other. Do you believe that? Take it out. Where is your faith? It's something you take out and you stand on. That's one of the main purposes of gathering together on a Sunday that can't be done in any other way is you get out their faith and you all stand on together and say, this is what we believe. We say the Apostles' Creed. We're helping you take it out no matter what your current circumstances are. No fear. Only faith. I want you to just take a moment and turn to somebody to your right and left. Look them in the eye. Don't just whisper like this. <laughs> and say, no fear, only faith. Hey, that's just a little practice session. Because whether you're a parent of a child, whether you're married, whether you have a best friend, whether you have a roommate, at some point, you're going to have to come up to your daughter and say, no fear, only faith. And somebody's going to have to come up to you and say, no fear. I know, I know the circumstances look terrible. No fear. Only faith. Jesus is looking for volunteers. Do you think he can get you from this life through this life into the next? Then jump aboard. Don't try to counterbalance. Don't look down. Look at Jesus. Let's pray.